Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast on digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. One of the current buzzwords in healthcare technology development is patient centricity. Patients are getting more and more engaged in their treatment, becoming the decision makers, not only recipients of care. But to design a successful solution for patient support with high user retention is, to put it mildly, an art. Every patient lives in a different home environment, has different personal goals and challenges. Therefore, a good disease management solution for patients needs to be highly personalized. The discussion you will hear today is focused on exactly that. What aspects to take into account when we are addressing patient behavior and patient empowerment? To which extent can technology decrease the need for real-life human coaches? Since last years have shown that apps work best in combination with human interventions. I spoke to Claire Camun, Executive Director of Patient Innovation at the French company MedClinic. Claire also shared her thoughts on technology adoption in France. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and I hope you will enjoy the show. Before we start, as always, a quick invite. Do subscribe to the podcast so you will be notified about the next episode automatically. I would also like to thank to all the listeners that have sent suggestions for speakers so far. I appreciate every idea, even though not all can be taken into account. Claire, you've been the executive director of patient innovation uh, with a company called MedClinic uh, for almost four years. Um, can you tell me how many chronic patients have you met so far? Well, actually, I've been with the company MedClinic I created in France about four years ago. Uh, but it is the French affiliate of the group 360 MedLink. And I have been with 360 MedLink almost since the start. The group was created in Canada in 2010 and I joined in 2011. So it's been a while. <laughs> uh, over the years, I, I worked with a few patients. I always try to meet patients or at least patient representatives, you know, patient associations. I've worked mm -hmm. with them in psoriasis, in multiple myeloma, in uh, melanoma, in diabetes, in HIV. I mean, I, I work with as many patients as I can. Honestly, I wouldn't be able to count. But for me, it's it's the base, right? If you want to do anything, you first need to ask um, what is actually going on in the field. And to do that, you need to ask the people that are in the field, the patients themselves, uh, the physicians, the nurses, what is relevant, So I always I always start from there. It always comes from from the field. You mentioned quite a few different patient groups. Uh, can you share your perspective or your uh, reflection on how chronic patients differ? Well, it's interesting that you ask. Um, I think obviously every disease is different and it has its own particularities, right? Its specificities. Um, and everyone's journey is different. And actually, a disease in France doesn't have the same journey as the same disease in the UK or in the US or in Latin America. So obviously, it's not just about the disease. It's also about the ecosystem in which the patient evolves. But what is interesting is I've been working for about three years now 
on a project uh, mapping out patient experience in France, um, comparing two very different diseases. Psoriasis, that is a chronic disease that you can get at any age, including at a very young age, um, that is socially apparent, but is not life-threatening. And on the other end, uh, we're comparing this with the journey of uh, multiple myeloma uh, patients, which is a cancer. Uh, so uh, it, it is life-threatening. It is a cancer that happens in older populations. Um, and that is uh, obviously mostly treated at a hospital, whereas psoriasis is mostly treated for primary care units. It seems that those diseases have nothing in common. However, when you talk to patients, you, you ask them about what they feel, what were the issues in their journeys, what were the needs, what were they missing, the type of support that they had, didn't have. Amongst those two diseases, you can find some great similarities. The theme, the needs, the human needs, they are the same because they're both living with a disease that you live with for a long time. And it is a disease that changes multiple aspects of their daily life. So that's what's super interesting is trying to map out patient experience in all its dimensions and then looking at each dimension for what it is and how it is impacted. And sometimes you can find some, some similarities with other diseases which means that when you are able to help one group of patients, if you design your solutions correctly, you can actually uh, design a solution that is poised to help multiple uh, groups of patients across the disease spectrum. In 2018, you co-authored a comprehensive article called The Thrive Model, a framework and review of internal and external predictors of coping with chronic illnesses. And the article basically de describes what you just said. It assesses the coping with diseases through six categories uh, through the acronym THRIVE. So therapeutic interventions, habit and routine, relational, uh, social, individual differences, values and beliefs, and emotional factors. Can you uh, explain a bit further um, what the THRIVE uh, research showed and what are, what are your hypotheses regarding the research that you mentioned you're doing now? The THRIVE article is actually one of the public that came from this research where we were comparing chronic diseases. Here, we took a focus on to the coping. Coping is really a com compounded uh, notion of both accepting the disease and living with it in the daily life. And we saw that it was influenced by many different factors. To summarize, some are in internal and others are external, either about the healthcare system, about the social relationship, etc. But this, for me, coping is still one of the dimensions of the healthcare journey and the patient experience, as we call it. The overall experience is the sum and aggregations of all interactions, uh, of all perceived and how they felt, right? It's a patient lived experience of those interactions, the healthcare ecosystem, the social ecosystem, the home ecosystem, and how the disease can impact all of those different dimensions. So the Thrive article is a perfect example, you're totally right, applied to one very specific concept. In that research, uh, we looked at coping. Um, obviously, we did a 
comprehensive literature review in order to be able to propose this framework. And But it didn't stop there. Uh, once we had that base uh, knowledge, we dug further and we started to develop tools to try and help um, in that regard. And we saw different uh, different levels that could require some help for patients or some support. The first one was to be able to express uh, your experience. Experience is a patient-lived notion. It's something that you feel. It's quite difficult to quantify or to talk about. So when you're going to talk to your healthcare provider and say, you know, at home it is difficult. What does difficult mean? Does he understand the same thing by difficult that you meant? This is really a communication challenge where you're trying to express yourself, so you encrypt your message, and you hope that the person that is receiving that message, in that case the doctor, is going to be able to decrypt it the way you intended it. So one of the first things that we tried is to develop a validated multidimensional questionnaire um, that assesses or helps to express, quantify patient experience in one or multiple dimensions. And this was really a tool that is somewhat of a, um, I will say, traditional tool, but that we, by its use, have tried to create as an innovative opportunity. So first, having a questionnaire that is multidimensional, that is patient-driven, and that is flexible. The second one was to use uh, the digital medium to try and help the use, I will say, or its integration into daily practice, both with an interface for patients or an interface for physicians. A, a second aspect where we saw there was a need is to try and help physicians and help um, healthcare organizations or um, healthcare uh, decision makers understand the weight of that patient-lived experience. We're currently preparing a health economic study showing the impact of patient-lived experience in those two groups, our pilot population, so psoriasis on the one hand and multiple myeloma on the other hand, showing the impact of how you feel things that happen to you and what impact it can have on medical outcomes and the impact of patient-lived experience on healthcare resources consumption to try and show decision-makers that it is something that could require time and try and find a model uh, where doctors are in a better position to find the time because time is so limited. So this is different aspect. We're also writing a white book, so a white paper, uh, as we would call it in English. It's Livre Blanc en Français. Um, but re really re reflecting on all those different dimensions and trying to suggest different solutions and ideas on, um, you know, patient lived experience before the diagnosis, at diagnosis, uh, of a relationship with healthcare providers, of relationship with folks at home, et cetera, et cetera. So really taking a, an account of what patients have told us, enriching that input with the viewpoint of doctors, institutions, uh, patient organizations, decision makers, anybody that is in the healthcare system. So really enriching all of that uh, conversations to find levers that we could act upon. And from there, imagine some solutions that could be uh, of interest and could be piloted into uh, the field. 
one of the thoughts from the Thrive article that stuck with me was the finding that successful adaptation to a chronic disease is more strictly related to patient personality than to the severity of disease itself. So if I incorporate this thought with what you just said, so that when it comes to coping, it matters uh, how uh, the patient perceives it, how patient is capable of explaining his uh, feelings uh, and his coping mechanisms, how the doctor actually perceives that. Um, it's, it's clear that patient behavior um, and patient uh, behavior management and change is really, really complex. So I'm really wondering how can you translate that into technology and technology design since um, every patient is so so different you know so it's really hard to find a solution that would fit everyone absolutely and i don't believe that there is a solution that can fit everyone i think um what technology is allowing us to do is trying to find flexible answers to questions what the research has been able to do or to highlight in the case of thrive are the different questions that we should ask to understand a patient's position towards coping with its disease, you should ask yourself about different personality traits that they have. You should ask yourself about the environment and the support that they have gotten. You should ask yourself about the relationships that they, that they have and who is made into their network. So this article, Thrive, lists basically the number of variables that you would put into an algorithm. And where technology is brilliant, and we're actually working on that with MedClinic and with the platform that we call Tavi, is with the help of AI and tailored content, try and engage patients on different aspects of disease management to profile them on those different questions. So with content, not just pure questions, but engaging them with a technology to try and profile them and based on this profile, provide tailored support. This is the only way, really, that we can address a larger population with a single solution, is with the capability of the solution to scale. Obviously, the solution then needs to be designed for multiple group of people from the get-go, right? There needs to be hypothesis, so there needs to be research behind all of it. No solution is ever finite. There is no solution that should, at least, be in its state and never move. It needs to continue to adapt. Look at Google. Google refines their algorithm again and again. And this is why they're still relevant because they adapt to user population. And this is what we need to do in health as well. Based on evidence, propose or design a first set of solutions that is the best evidence-driven guess of a solution that could engage and support patients. Then use technology to tailor real time, to tailor that solution to different use cases and different population subsegments until you could almost individualize it. I'm assuming there's a lot of hope that AI will drive us forward to this personalization and refinement of specifics for uh, for an individual. I think it's really interesting when you think about how even, for example, the tone with which you speak 
can be an information and computers can't really digest that yet. But in order to train artificial intelligence, you need very specific instructions to get uh, meaningful uh, outputs. Um, how do you see that the support for patients is improving or changing with uh, new technologies? And how fast do you think it will be uh, good enough so uh, there's going to be a lesser need for uh, personal ev involvement of uh, uh, clinicians or healthcare workers? If you look at, at, at the past development of technologies, it has become clear quite quickly that apps uh, alone will not be able to help patients, uh, that there has to be basically a telemedical support in the background or a healthcare professional, a real healthcare professional that deals with the patient. Do you think that's ever going to decrease with the uh, improvements in artificial intelligence? I think that's definitely a loaded question. Can technology replace a human? Um, I think that's a very, uh, that's a conception that is pretty far from us right now, uh, just because we don't understand technology so far enough um, that we could trust it as well as we would trust a human, even with all of the errors that a normal human would be able to make. Technology right now and AI in this case, uh, machine learning is basically a super engine for pattern recognition. Um, it can really learn from what you tell them. It can't, it can't, it can't answer a question you haven't asked, right? Answering a question you have not asked, this is more towards singularity where machines are going to learn by themselves beyond what you have told them and equal uh, the reflection of what we're doing, a general uh, artificial intelligence. I think this is a goal in uh, neuroscience um, or technology in neuroscience, uh, but we are pretty far off from this. Do I think that a technology could replace healthcare professional? For sure. I think it is possible. I think it already happens to some extent. There are some algorithms that can replace lower urgency tasks. For instance, in dermatology, you, you can get uh, visual recognition assisted AIs to uh, tell you if a mole is cancerous or if it should be checked out, right? Thus saving a consult. It's also something that can assist healthcare providers, for instance, assist nurses in order to save doctor time, right? Um, ask only uh, fewer questions. So I, th I think it's not a question of, is it possible? I think it, it's a question of, is it acceptable? And what is needed in order for mentality to get there? Or should they get there? I think this is more of an ethical debate, right? The question is, is that a doctor is trained to make decisions with an ethical compass as much as is knowledge, can a computer have as much knowledge as a physician or better? For sure. If you have access at all time to every knowledge ever, you can always check the guidelines, right? You can always have the correct answer. So a computer could be more reliable than a human. However, what a human does is adapt, is read faces better. These are innate capacities that we have not yet learned to transfer, transfer onto a machine. Empathy. It's something that we have not been able to transfer onto a machine. So for me, technology right now is poised to 
help healthcare providers maybe optimize their time, right? Um, but not replace. Tavi, a product uh, by MedClinic, is the first clinically validated virtual nurse. Uh, so you mentioned it before, but in brief, can you share a little bit about how the system works and how you're getting new healthcare professionals to use it? Tavi is a patient companion. The goal of Tavi is to help and support patients through their disease journey. So understanding the disease, understanding the treatment, understanding the care journey, and being able to self-manage as much as possible. That means being engaged, having the tools and the self-efficacy needed in order to act and to have a positive health behaviors. It is based on multiple AI's uh, motors, basically. One of them is educational, where we use an algorithm to navigate content units in order to deliver individualized patient education on various themes. The second aspect is we use AI also to deliver an individual patient experience of the app itself. So understanding what are the patient's needs, what are their drivers, and what features to push forward. Because obviously, if you want to have a patient support app that is complete uh, in terms of pathology support, then you need to be, be able to help them with their medications, their appointments, with their side effects, with coping with the disease, with physical activity, with monitoring heart rate. So there's an, a, a big amount of things which amounts to an app that could be quite complicated. So we use the AI so that our features are really activated when they are relevant for the patient in real time. We always work with field actors or field organizations when we develop a TAVI. So we have this base technology, and when we adapt it for melanoma, for psoriasis, for HIV, in that country or that country or that country, we always go back to the field, work hand-in-hand with physicians, hospitals, with patient organizations, so that we can tailor it to the country. We also run clinical or real-life validation studies of our programs. So we are a clinically validated solutions because every every new version of TAVI in any different pathologies is always revalidated. And this is how we can engage with physicians. We engage them by showing them evidence that, one, it will save them time. Two, it will help their patients reach improved outcomes or optimized outcomes. For instance, improved adherence to medication will, uh, will help them ha- have better treatment efficacy. And three, we adapt to their technology ability. We don't always need to hand them over a remote monitoring platform. We have one that is a physician interface of TAVI. In some countries and some cases where this is necessary for them and they are welcoming it, they have it and they use it, that's great. In other cases, it has happened that it becomes complicated, right? There is already the hospital record and integration is possible but takes time and is costly. So we find other ways. We want to support the patients, so we give them the keys and the tools to improve their daily life. 
We want to improve the patient-physician relationship, so we also have tools targeted at that. And for the physician, if they don't have time to look at a second console, we don't force it either. In phase one, we deploy with the minimum, right? We are patient. We're going to show you the value. And then once they are convinced, say, well, actually, I would want more. We let them tell us when they are ready to have more in their hands, to have that remote monitoring ability, um, to dedicate some time. We talked a lot about uh, patient behavior and the complexity around it. Uh, I'm wondering, what's your observation regarding what are the mistakes, perhaps, uh, in the perception of what patient empowerment is? Uh, and when designing new solutions, what are the biggest findings, let's say, with technology in the last eight to ten years that you've been in healthcare? Well, I think what technology allows us to do is to refine some concept like patient empowerment in order to understand more of the individual profile and and stray away from those terms. The problem with patient empowerment is that it seems to be like the goal, right? You, What does it mean? Um, it means you are active, you are taking charge of yourself. But in the alternative, if you are not empowered, what, what are you, powerless? It's very exclusive as a concept. So I understand that it's meant very positively. But if you think about the other end of the spectrum, so patients that won't get there because their individual personality is just not that, they require a different type of support. Those patients are excluded from that empowerment group and could feel a little bit left alone. What I think technology can help is to better understand the subgroups, um, to understand the population better, um, to not think uh, in black and white. It's not, I'm adherent, not adherent. I'm empowered, not empowered. I self-manage, don't self-manage. Human beings are so much more nuanced than that, um, that technology is helping us to account for multiple variables to try and not solve the equation because I don't think it is uh, it is something that we'll be able to do anytime soon, but try and understand at least the general tendency of every patient so that you can t- tailor um, your intervention to it. You need to understand also that empowerment, like any variable, is not a straight line. Some days can be better than others. Health behavior is always is one of the variables, one of the balls that the patient juggle. And sometimes balls weigh differently. Uh, when you just had your diagnosis, the healthcare ball is heavier. So you're going to pay a lot of attention to it. But then when you talk especially about chronic disease, a few years, decades down the line, the healthcare ball is a little bit old news, but I have a new job. I have a new husband. I... I have a new life situation. So my personal ball is now becoming heavier. And I think what technology is allowing us to to do is figure out the weight variation of the different balls, right? If we can let the AI know, say, hey, here are all the parameters that I can think of, they're going to be able to recognize patterns and then pattern deviations. 
And those pattern deviations can help us understand when something is wrong. And if something is wrong, it means that there is a need of support. Then the question is, what kind of support? As technology evolves, you will be able to move from, I have a group of patients, to I have subgroups of patients, to I have individual patients. I think based on everything you said that the conclusion could be that any solution that tries to address this problem has to be very, very flexible and adaptable to the patient and his changing uh, situation. Creating solution has never been the problem, but helping people that are on the field, that are on the front lines, understanding that their life or their work is now changing but we have not taught them how to use those different techno uh, technological tools, but now they need to use them. So this is where uh, innovation gets tricky. If the people that are meant to use it aren't able to. So I think this is one of the key challenge of finding solutions. I think that's the, the easy part. A lot of people are working on it. You mentioned how many startups are created everywhere. Finding solutions is almost the easy part. In a way, um, technology is important, but what's getting increasingly important is the sociology, psychology, and anthropology around it, right? Absolutely. Technology is only as good as you use it. If you don't use it or don't know how to use it or can't use it correctly, technology is not going to do much good. At Health 2.0 in 2015, you presented the Project Tavi and mentioned that cultural relevance is taken into account and that, for example, in France, you need to have four or five nurses due to different cultures. Can we stop there a little bit? So how does that reflect in the solution? Every time we go into a different country, we look at our content, our approach. Is it relevant for the country? One of the thing is that virtual nurse or virtual coach. The person that delivers the content in Tavi is recorded. So video recorded onto hundreds of very short 30, 90 seconds videos articulated onto the algorithm I talked about earlier. Who we are going to use for France is not the same person recorded as we're going to use for Germany or Sweden or Mexico. So every time we want our coach to be able to relate to the population. Sometimes it requires to have more than one options for patients to find a coach they can relate to. Because what you learn is very important, but who you learn from is just as important for patients. We need them to feel at ease, to connect. So this is why when we go into a new, a new country, we work again with patients' organizations and with our local partners to define and find the coach or coaches that are going to be uh, the face of TAVI in that disease in that country. Which countries is Project Tavi uh, running in and what are your experiences with the healthcare systems? So in your view, to which extent are the healthcare systems on a national level the ones that should be in charge of supporting solutions like this for chronic disease management? Tavi has been so far deployed in Canada, in the US, France, uh, we also had a multi-European project in Belgium, Sweden, and Germany. But we are rapidly expanding. Uh, actually, in January, we are launching another TAVI program 
uh, in oncology and we're launching it right away in five countries, uh, five European countries in France, Belgium, Sweden, uh, Spain and Germany. And we are uh, scheduled to expand to UK, Australia, Poland, Italy, um, so and so on and so forth. Now, whose responsibility is it to support those type of intervention? That's a very fair question. And I think this is definitely something where in each country there is a different answer. What I can say is that helping patients reach self-management and optimize their treatment outcomes comes at a benefit in terms of healthcare expenditure. There has been studies on this, uh, especially focusing on uh, adherence and how it can prevent unplanned hospitalizations, complications, or even deaths. So in that, you could think that if the benefit is on the healthcare payer, then the sponsor could be the healthcare payer. What are your more direct experiences, for example, with the presence in the U.S. compared to France? Because the two healthcare systems differ quite a lot, whereas the U.S. system is a private system. France has a different approach with statutory health insurance that basically covers uh, all the care. Maybe you can pitch in your personal experience uh, of living in France and being a part of the French healthcare system system and uh, being familiar with the U.S. while you were living there uh, for a few years? Actually, I can talk to you about uh, a couple of programs that we have. We have currently a program in the U.S. that is financed by the government on a grant. It's been three years uh, that we are being deployed with the support of the Health and Human Services Department of Rhode Island um, for an HIV intervention. So this is a public support. And in France, interestingly, while we do have social security, which means like a universal healthcare system, we are supported by private payers. So it's quite, it's quite interesting. It's quite ironic, actually. In France, Tavi would uh, fall into what we call um, therapeutic education programs, and they are very much legislated. They have very strict specifications of being delivered by a group of healthcare physicians at the hospital, organized by a, uh, by a uh, certified uh, healthcare professional. As you can understand, that definition excludes digital, digital interventions. So because there is, this is an exception to the rule, uh, and that the French government is supporting innovation, they have created what is called Article 51, where um, you can apply for an experimentation to be funded. We are differing from the rule that says that therapeutic education is an in-person act organized by physicians at the hospital. And we actually, with Tavi, are offering a digital patient education done at home via the mobile device, so at the fingertips of patients. So we are currently preparing an experimentation under what that law has has foreseen. France is known for, for its bureaucracy. And what you just described sounds like quite a big uh, a bu bureaucratic process if you want to get a digital solution in place in, on a national level or through the national system. What's your experience regarding uh, how open is France to digital innovation of the healthcare system? Well, it's, it's true that in France, there is this notion of 
mitigated risk, right? Uh, we want to be cautious and we only go little by little. Uh, we try and be secure uh, and not go too fast, too quickly. That said, the recent government, the health government, has in its plan to modernize the French healthcare system and recognizes how technology advances quite fast. This is why they have opened this opportunity of the Article 51. For sure, it is a big filing, but you are asking the government to fund an innovation. I think it is fair um, that you need to cross your T's and dot your I's. Now, are we friendly to innovation? I think we are cautiously optimistic about innovation. Some other countries may be more innovation friendly or more rapid to install innovation like the U.S., Keep in mind that France has been an innovator for years in medical technology, right? It's in France that a lot of medical advances have been done. Now, in terms of technology, maybe we have not been on the forefront just now, but it's something that is poised to change. I actually found some data regarding um, healthcare ecosystem in terms of innovation. Young startups soon encounter obstacles to their growth, so a lot of uh, French startups prefer to develop their activity abroad. Um, how would you comment that? I mean, I have created myself a health startup, right? Uh, Medclinic uh, is the French affiliate of 360 Medlink and has been created here in France. It is definitely a challenge because in order to be trusted with sufficient financing, you need to, to prove yourself. You need to be patient and patience means you need to be cash fluid <laughs> for a while. Um, so it could, it, it is a challenge for sure. Uh, funding can come easier in the US, right? You can get an angel investor pretty quickly. But don't forget that there are some uh, startups here that grow and flourish uh, very much. For instance, Doctolib has been raising <laughs> millions. Biosensivity, I think, just received 50 millions from Dassault System. So yes, we create a lot of startups. This shows the innovation potential of the French ecosystem. I mean, ideas are here. You know, you have doctors that are ready to launch ideas. Sometimes they initiate their, their own, um, their own solutions. The, having the ideas and having that will to innovate is not the problem. You could even argue that in France, because it's still conservative, there is even more to do. Um, now in the US, you have just as many startups, right? I mean, the Silicon Valley, etc. I think the question is how many survive in, in one country or the next? Some may decide to take their business elsewhere and then come back to France. This is something that I have heard a lot um, of startups that start out in France with a concept and do a great experimentation phase. But in terms of scaling, um, they have opportunities abroad and then come back to France later because France may not be the fastest country um, to adopt change. But it's definitely something you can put on your resume. If it works in France, it's going to work. When you say that uh, companies go abroad, uh, do you mean out of Europe or in European countries as well? Because I think Europe is pretty famous for uh, the diversity of healthcare systems and the difficulty of getting, getting reimbursement through health insurance companies in majority of, of cases. No, definitely. Finding finding the business model, I think, is the key challenge. 
um, you have the traditional business model where you want to have your CE markings and have the uh, social security or the health insurance or the public payer pay for your uh, for your solution like they would a any health product. But I think that as the healthcare system is changing and the society is changing, we need to also figure out different business models um, that allow for innovations to thrive faster, faster than the administration sometimes would allow. Now, where do the companies move? Some move um, to Israel, where it's also a very active ecosystem. Some move to the US. Some, I'm sure, are moving to other parts of the of the European Union. I, I don't have numbers on that. Um, I have individual stories, but I don't have numbers on that. What's your um, kind of expectation regarding the future of empathic patient care enhanced with wearables, artificial intelligence, implantables, and IoT? I don't know that I have expectations. I think that I hope that those feelings such as empathy and sympathy even sometimes, um, that they still have a place at the table um, even though data is going to come with such power. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. Coming up soon, a series about digital health in Asia. Among the speakers you will hear from is Tony Estrella, an investor, advisor and novelist currently based in Singapore. Here is one of his thoughts. I live in Singapore and so I, I get a lot of exposure to the trends that are happening, not just in Southeast Asia, but across the region. And I'd say that Asia clearly has enormous growth potential. Uh, it's 4.4 billion people in 44 countries. You know, if you look at the challenges of chronic disease, there's an explosion of the, the disease growth. Uh, across the region in prevalence and incidence. If you look at lifestyle risk factors, the obesity levels of individuals in Asia is also rapidly changing in a negative way. And so there's uh, opportunities if you look at it from the dimension of which health outcomes should be influenced and which should be changed. There's a huge number of people out here. And it's also a very mobile first and, and uh, digital centric society. And so the ability to leapfrog legacy infrastructures that might exist in the U.S. and in Europe is happening already. And it's making healthcare more available and, and, and healthcare delivery models uh, hap are happening in a very different and unique way as compared to what it, how it might develop in the U.S. and in Europe. Stay tuned. 